Thank you for downloading the BDAS podcast brought to you by UWE Bristol. In this podcast, we are joined by Jenny Garrett, OBE, Executive Coach, Speaker and Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Expert. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to this In Conversation event. My name is Simon Nelson. I'm the founder of Same Difference, an EDI training and consultancy firm. Uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here uh, facilitating the discussions that we're going to have with Jenny Garrett, OBE, in a little while. But before the introductions, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. We're not expecting any emergencies, but the emergency exits here are at the back and out of here, and you congregate outside in the pouring rain. Um, for those of you who wanted to use the facilities, there are facilities on the ground floor uh, of this building in the X block. Welcome to you all. Just a further reminder of how you can be in, uh, participate this evening. Uh, a little bit about the format in a while, but you will be, be able to use Menti on here. We will also be asking questions of you, so think about some questions that you might put uh, to Jenny in a little while. Um, before I introduce Paul to speak to you all, um, I start all of my training um, and my background in EDI talks about how we come together to have conversations, constructive conversations, in safe spaces. And, and I believe you're all here in this safe space to contribute to the growth of UE as it moves forward on its anti-racism mission. So for me, this is a safe place for us to engage. This isn't about blaming, shaming, or making anyone feel guilty. It's about getting involved in conversation, constructive conversation. Um, and on that note, on that note, uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce uh, Paul Olamalai, who has been and been instrumental in pushing forward this agenda to give us a bit of a background as to the anti-racism strategy here at UWE. So please, if you will, welcome Paul to the stage to give us an update. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And just as Simon has just said, this is a reflective space here tonight. And I just want all of us to breathe in and uh, breathe out. And uh, with that simple act of breathing in, I want to tell all of us that that keeps you alive. And if you just imagine Yui as a living organism, and you are here to actually provide us that oxygen, that space for us to actually gain some oxygen to be alive, for ourselves to function, for our organs to perform as they should. And tonight is one of those breathing in time just as Simon has said. Please, just come, be reflective, and we will challenge you, and hopefully we should be able to move the agenda forward a little bit more. Thank you very much for coming. At UWE Bristol, our goal is to foster a society of inclusion, or an inclusive society but we rather choose to say society of inclusion, a society that is driven by inclusion, 
by the desire to be inclusive that has inclusion right in its DNA, in the way it works. That's what we want to be. Where diverse experiences are valued, they are celebrated and integrated into the fiber, the real fiber of the university itself. It is not enough to promote and encourage inclusion. That is, we blab about it, just talk about it. We must take substantive actions which will address inequalities wherever it shows its ugly head, prejudices and disparities. We must take substantive action. To truly achieve that, we as a University of West of England know that we have a long way to go. We recognize that there are systemic issues and there, we, there are consistent, we need to consistently battle with these uh, systemic issues and try to improve on them. This continuous improvement is needed to ensure racial equity and that racial equity is properly reflected in the staff and student experiences and outcomes at UWE. Racism causes harm and damages our integrity as a university. And every incidence of racism in this university makes our heart to bleed. It's not what we want to be. It harms the individual. It harms either side. Nobody gains from racism because it is inhuman. It's not the way the human has been constructed. And it is our responsibility to make it right. Everybody's responsibility. What we have done so far as with considerable regret, not being enough to address the disparities and racism that exist in our culture, in our systems and practices, we've started. But everything we've done is not enough. We still have significant problems. We as a university are determined to make much bolder steps to address these problems. This will take a whole university approach and effort. We are starting to develop and prioritize a new anti-racism strategy in which everyone must play their part to create a culture of inclusion. Throughout our journey, we are listening and learning from those most affected, but without the burden falling on the most affected, on them to change things. Because in most cases, they, it is impossible for them to actually make the change. Yet we want them to be the only lone black voice in a recruitment exercise. And we have so few of them that we use them over and over and over again until we drain blood out of them. And then we say, oh, you guys, you did not publish academic papers for the ref. You understand how we work? All right? And we say we must change this. We are listening to the most affected. 
We are now using these insights alongside data and research, which are in abundance, to inform our strategic plans and development of the anti-racist strategy. It will require everyone to be involved and to act. This uh, Distinguished Address series today, being led by Jenny, thank you very much for coming, is particularly uh, important as it offers our university community a safe space to engage in meaningful conversation about racism. Authentic and inclusive leadership. What it means to you with Bristol and the individuals in the community we lead. By that, I just want to be able to say th something about authentic and inclusive leadership. Can I be a leader if I'm only leading 80% of the people? What of the remaining 10%, 20%? So we are looking for authentic leaders. So I'm speaking to all of us who are leaders here. What this means to the UE heart that is building, uh, that is beating and looking for oxygen. We think it is of the utmost importance that everyone understands why we are doing this and can see their role and part for them to play within that. Some of you in the room may know that we have dedicated, we have a dedicated positive action program called the Equity. And we are proud to say that this BIDAS event tonight is delivered in collaboration with Equity Program, celebrating Black History Month and marking the start of the Equity Module for some of our students. For those of you who don't know what Equity is, the program offers a range of professional and personal development opportunities to global majority students. I'm deliberately saying global majority because I never knew I was a minority until I came to England. <laughs> and those from racially, motiv uh, racially minoritized backgrounds. A key strand of this program is its coaching approach, something that the university is passionate about adopting across its whole offering. We see the success of coaching in our students and staff, so we are thrilled to welcome Executive Coach Jenny to speak today. So get all your questions ready to ask the coach. The equity team are here with us this evening, so if you want to find more about equity, please ask them in the networking session that will come after this uh, event. If you want to be able to offer our students some mentoring opportunities in your company, please just speak to our equity, uh, equity program leaders and they will be able to connect you with our students. If the only thing you can do as a company is to just adopt one of our students, then you've done a great deal tonight. You've actually taken the first step. Lastly, thank you so much for joining us here this evening and being part of the change. We hope this offers you inspiration tonight and a chance to challenge 
your own thinking. Before we go on, I will refer you to this. Dig deeper. Look closer. And then think bigger. Is there anything in you to dig into tonight? I'm sure there is something for you to dig into. If not, you will not attend an event like this. So you are great already, and you are most welcome. I will now hand over to Simon. Thanks, Paul. And we will come back to Paul uh, a little bit later on for some closing remarks. Um, just a bit of structure. I'm going to ask uh, Jenny to come up on stage in a little while and ask a set of questions that have come from the equity and equality team here um, for about 20 minutes, and then the floor will be open to you to use Menti or indeed to raise your hands and, uh, and, and ask a question. But without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jenny Garrett, OBE to the stage. Jenny, please come up. Um, a little bit of background for those of you who don't know who Jenny is. Jenny is an award-winning career coach, author, and leadership trainer. Together with her team, they deliver impactful development to support women and those from ethnically diverse backgrounds to progress at work, as well as supporting majority group leaders to make inclusive inclusion happen. She's also co-founder of her social enterprise, Rocking Your Teens, which connects corporates within a pipeline of future talent. Jenna's latest practical and empowering book is Equality versus Equity, Tackling Issues of Race in the Workplace. Jenny, it's a pleasure to have you here at UWE. Welcome. Thank you. Thank uh, the you. first question that I have here, you've amassed an extensive career in the field of equality, diversity, and inclusion. I know not just from the, the books that you've but the actual talks that you've done. Can you tell us what's kept you motivated during that time and what sort of setbacks have you yourself had encountered and how have you overcome those? Yes, gosh, big start with a big question. Why don't you? <laughs> um, uh, gosh, I, I guess my journey starts with my parents. My parents came from the Caribbean when they were in their teenage years. Um, their parents had come before them and wanted to start, um, wanted them to have a great life. Um, and I think that when you have um, family who have come from very humble beginnings, had challenging times, um, you don't want you don't want others to experience the same thing. So I think stories and experiences from my family have, have shown me a lot. Um, my mum had me very young. She was t a teenager as well. Um, so, it, it, you know, it wasn't an easy start for us. Um, and, I, and I think that sometimes, depending on your background, uh, that could be or your ethnicity, um, could be around class, could be the intersection of your identity, people don't have high expectations of you. Uh, and, and I think that this idea of empowerment, which runs through all my work, is about helping people to have high expectations of themselves and look beyond uh, the judgments of other people and realise your potential. So I think that's, that's at the heart of everything. <clears throat> of everything I do, um, uh, that's at the heart of my journey. But I'd say there have been different touch points, really. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that when um, I, my last job, before I started my own business, was in a business school, and a colleague who's now a really good friend came into my office and just said, where next, where are you going with your <laughs> career? And I remember thinking, I'm there, I'm at my career. You know, I've, I've achieved, uh, you know, I'm doing okay. And she said, you can do more. I see the skills of listening. I see your skills of motivating people. I think you could go on a coaching program. And I was in a really good space to do that. So I think feedback can make quite a difference to motivating you and putting you on track. And the other thing was having my daughter. 
I realized at that point, I'm a role model and um, I've got to step up. <laughs> and if I say I can't do something, that will give her an excuse to say that she can't do something. So I've got to push myself out of my comfort zone. So motivators sometimes have been other people's feedback, but also knowing that I'm a role model to my daughter mm -hmm. and, and that I want to leave a better world for her. And any yeah. setbacks that, you've occurred, that have occurred that you've overcome? How, how have you overcome those? Yeah, I think I've had loads of setbacks um, from going for contracts and not getting them, going for jobs when I was um, employed and not getting them, um, from people not seeing my own potential um, uh, within, within roles and within organisations, to running my own business and thinking, oh, what, how am I going to pay wages? <laughs> and is this, gonna, is this actually going to work? You know, you? the phone's not ringing. Oh, my goodness. So I've had lots of them. I think over the years, what I've, I've learned to do is, or what I've seen through my experience, is that nothing is ever wasted. No experience is ever a waste. Um, at some point, you'll use that learning, whether it's you, you wrote something that no one's interested in. Oh, I can repurpose that in a different way to actually that, that failure um, introduced me to lots of people. I went for a job and I didn't get it, but now people know who I am. And actually, they still come back to me for the, the next role that's come up. So I feel that, that no experience is wasted, even if it's felt like a setback at the time. Yeah. It's actually helped me in the future and it's up to me to find the learning from it. That's a really, it's a really interesting point that leads on to the second question that we have here, which is it's the start of a new academic year here at UWE, which can bring a great deal of change for mm. students and staff alike. Uh, and some may be feeling a degree of uncertainty um, in their own self, either through confidence, self-worth, their own motivation. What advice would you give our community on the dreaded imposter syndrome mm. uh, and how, we can, how can we combat these feelings? Yes, yeah. It's, it's a good question and probably not one answer. Um, and just in case anyone's not clear on imposter syndrome, it's this sense that you feel like you're a fraud, uh, that you might have to work harder than anyone else to be able to be equally successful, that someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, oh, we didn't mean to have you here at UWE. You know, that sort of feeling. Um, I think your why is key. Why did you come to university? What, what, what did you want to achieve from coming? Um, did, are you the first in your family to have achieved it? Did you want a brand new experience? Did you want to learn something and go, go on a, a certain career path? Whatever it is, keep connecting with that why. It really anchors you, particularly in challenging times. So I think that's the first thing. But the second thing is that you know, what we focus on gets bigger. So if I focus on, oh, I haven't got any friends yet, this is overwhelming, will I be able to um, deal with all of this work that's come in my direction? Um, oh, the rain is pouring with rain here and maybe, you know, where I've come from, it's not. Um, if you focus on that, it gets bigger. Yeah. Um, and it takes, it takes discipline and it takes conscious effort to actually take time out to think about the one good thing that happened today. Yeah. The, the person who actually smiled at me in the corridor. Um, the moment where actually I used to get lost going that way, but now I don't get lost anymore. You know, whatever it is, those tiny things, it takes conscious effort to notice them. Absolutely. But when you do, when you start to tune into that, you start to realise actually those things get better. Absolutely. Um, and it, and it, but it's important for you to do that focusing. Yeah. And that support is out there as well around yes. these issues as well, especially yeah. here yes. at the university. Yes, yeah, you're not alone and seek support. No person is an island. So Crucially. it's really important to 
build communities of people around you. Some people hate the word networking, yeah, so sometimes I stay away from build your network, but build a community, yeah. build people who, who you can turn to, who can turn to you, um, and who you can share with. Totally agree, mm. totally agree. You've worked in EDI for some time now across many organisations and institutions that are looking to increase their diversity, improve their inclusivity practices. What does it mean, what does it mean to you as a person of colour that UE Bristol are on this journey to becoming an anti-racist institution. Um, in terms of leadership and its staff and students and its community, what, what should that feel like? Uh, what should an anti-racist university feel like? Yeah, that's such a great question. And um, I think something that not everyone visions enough and articulates enough. Um, I think what it should feel like is appreciation of difference. Uh, appreciation, harnessing and leveraging, leveraging difference. It shouldn't be that, oh, actually what we do is we don't, we don't see everyone, we're just one UE. Of course you will be one UE, but actually, oh gosh, you know, you bring something that we don't have and that's of benefit and that uniqueness, please celebrate it. Please bring it to the table because we know that's going to bring creativity, agility. It's going to help you be a competitive university. So I th for me, it's definitely about the appreciation of difference. And then it's about dismantling anything that gets in the way of you being able to do that. And they're conscious structures, but they're also unconscious ways of thinking sometimes. Yeah. In organisations, sometimes it's, oh, anyone whose first language is an, is an, is an English, um, uh, we find they're not going up the ranks so much. That's an un some un unconscious work happening there. No one's saying that is a policy, but it ends up being something that ends being fulfilled. So it's also, uh, what are we going to dismantle? What, anything that gets in the way of that, we're going to dismantle it and we're going to remove it. I totally agree. Mm. And how might our community then support one another and people of colour to to own their identity and become an ally in this field, what, what sort of things could they be doing? Yeah, and I think, what is allyship? Allyship yeah. is really about um, being a person who perhaps is not experiencing the discrimination, but making it your problem. Yeah, yeah? making it your problem. Because if, if I'm experiencing discrimination in some way, for whatever reason, if I complain about it, I'm the one with the chip on my shoulder. Yeah. And there's a huge amount of emotional labor and triggers probably that are happening within me every time that happens. But if someone else who actually doesn't have, you know, have the same characteristics as me and doesn't have to care, just says, actually, you know what, I, this, any problem is my problem. Any injustice I see is a, an injustice for society that I need to do something about. That's, that's allyship. So it's not about um, observing in the meeting that person who's always spoken over or who's, who's, whose ideas are appropriated um, and then going out, out of the meeting and saying to that person, are you all right? I saw that happen. It's about in the meeting saying, ah, oh, I think they didn't finish their point. Oh, that idea, uh, that person said it. And I think we have to make sure they get credit for it. And it, it is about speaking up and calling it in, but not in a way that we're blaming, naming yeah. and shaming, but educating and helping and learning together. That's, that's what it looks like, in my opinion. It's, it's seeing the student who perhaps has a different background and uh, maybe feels isolated, 
and, and finding a way to bring them into the group yeah. and including them. It's, it's noticing things, um, really noticing, and fighting your own affinity bias, which means that, oh, I'm so attracted to people who look like me, and saying, you know what, That's, that is, the neural pathways will actually get me there. But you know what, I'm going to break those habits yeah. and decide to befriend that person and speak to that person. And, I, and actually, I'm going to benefit from that. I totally agree. Yeah, it's not just a one way, it's two way, because you will always benefit from doing that. Yeah. I hear you. Being comfortably uncomfortable yes. is often what we should be striving mm. towards. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Jenny, for your insight here. We're going to open the okay. floor up to some questions from the floor now and also through Menti. Um, do we have a mentee sheet coming through? Are there any questions for Jenny? Any observations? Yes. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Okay, so my name is Sharon. I'm um, from the NHS. Hi, Sharon. I really have got passion for EDI. Uh -huh. And one of the first things I've dropped down when, is when you said uh, no experience is ever wasted. Mm. Can you just share what skill sets you actually apply to ensure that that is a reality? That's a really good question. How do I, how do I make that happen? I think one of the things <clears throat> that happens to me, so if I think my bounce back ability has got uh, a shorter and shorter dur duration. So previously, if something didn't go my way, maybe I might be down for however long, a day, just say. And now I give myself a short space of, shorter space of time. So I might say, okay, I'm gonna give my, myself an hour to be cheesed off about that. And then I'm gonna go and find the learning in it. Or I'm gonna park it, because I know there'll be some learning. So there's something for me which is about I, I, allowing myself to be okay with things not going my way, but then knowing and parking it and knowing that there will be some learning. Um, so if I think about those skills, I, I guess it's, 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 there's something about me knowing, there's a, a knowing I put in place, which is actually this is going to be a good thing. I don't know if it's today or tomorrow or a week's time, but I know there's going to be some learning from it. And I, you know, I think it's probably about that growth mindset space. But I, I also think that there has to be a space for being miserable or being cheesed <laughs> off about things. And I think that's human. And I think we have to allow ourselves that space as well. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I think that's probably it. Thank you. Thank you. A question's coming. How do you manage change and uncertainty? I mean, I, I always believe that change is constant in, in any organisation, but how do you manage change and uncertainty? Yes. You know, if we just think about COVID, because um, that was a big change, because all, before COVID, all of my work was face-to-face, -face, yeah. um, uh, or majority of my work was face-to-face. -face. And I remember as um, we were getting closer and closer to lockdown, I was supposed to go to South Africa, I was supposed to go to all these different places to travel, <laughs> and it was slowly getting harder and harder and then cancelled. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, am I not going to have any work? What will I do? And I started thinking, maybe I'd write a book, um, but, but you know, maybe that's what I have to fill, you know, fill my time with because I, I had thought about writing another book. And then, um, and then there was a space which was, oh, this online stuff is interesting. Oh, this is interesting. How can we pivot our work? And actually, that ended up being a real growth for my, my company during that time. So I think how I manage change is with curiosity. Yeah, how can I get interested in this? How can I not be, how can I manage my own fear around it and be curious? And I think right now I'm doing that with AI. Yeah. 
Yeah, because AI, there's a lot of fear. Or oh, is it going to take over the experience of coaches? Is it going to take everyone's job? Yeah. And I could therefore say, oh, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep away from it. But instead, I'm engaging with curiosity and thinking, mm -hmm. how can this help me? What are the dangers? What are the ethics? I want to learn about it in a holistic way, but I don't, I don't want to be fearful of it. Yeah. Um, I completely yeah. empathise with that, mm. with what you were saying about. COVID and mm. new ways of thinking and mm. learning. Yeah, so for me, I think, yeah, embrace these things with curiosity. Change is happening. I know it's always more challenging when, the other thing I'd say is, it's more challenging when change is thrust upon you. Yeah, and, um, and what sometimes people do is they remember the last time change was thrust mm. upon them, but in a negative way. So sometimes I have clients who maybe redundancy is looming, Okay, and they think about the last time they made they were made redundant and they remember how awful that was. And I remind them there's been this gap in which you have more skills, more knowledge. You, you were resilient in that situation. Remember who you are now, not who you were then. And I think, again, that when you hit change, it's really helpful to remember how much you've grown and how more how much more equipped you are to deal with it. Really good point. How important is it to study the biographies of people who made significant changes, such as Malcolm X, and how do we incorporate their activism and great sacrifices into our own lives? Really good question. Mm, fantastic question. How important is it? I, I think everyone takes their own route to get to where they, they want to go. Um, for some people, it will be reading biographies, and for other people, it will be learning about uh, black history or other yep. history in different ways. Um, and for others, they will um, learn from current scholars. Uh, you know, Akala is a, you know, a fantastic author who shares so much. So, yeah, I think there's something about learning from the past to help you go forward. But how you do it is up to you, I think. And, and actually, sometimes I think I learn from very unrelated topics about the topic I'm in. You know, I think we can learn a lot from nature, for example, right. um, I, you know, uh, about what it means to, you know, what, what do they say? Um, flowers, um, flowers decide to bloom, but they never compete. Yeah. You know, they don't compete. I, I need to bloom better than you, yeah. but I still bloom. Yeah. You know, I think you can learn a huge amount from nature. So I think you can learn from related topics, but I think you can learn a lot from unrelated topics yes. as well. I totally agree. Um, one of my heroes is Bayard Rustin. Mm -hmm. For those of you who are not familiar, um, look up Bayard, his biography. Can you give some insight into DNI initiatives that uh, it's not Band-Aid approach? And a, uh, because many of the approaches appear to be sticky plaster. Yes. Uh, what sort of initiatives work that are not those? For yes. Yeah, it was really pleasing for me to hear that you've been working with you for eight years. Um, for me, that when people are committed, it's not a two-hour session, a one-off two-hour session, and, and we've ticked the box. Yeah. It's about how can we sustain um, some development because this takes time. This is hard work. We've been trying to eradicate yeah. racism for uh, forever, um, and, and, and actually to do this work takes a long time. So I, I think organisations who want to do something year after year and sustain um, is really important. And for me, we, the, the work we do is a lot about increasing representation at senior levels of those from the global majority. Yeah. Um, now, it's never about fixing those people. 
Yeah, and, and this is this is the problem. Give them some training, fix them, and then the problem will be eradicated. When organisations say that to me, I tell them that maybe their line manager is part of the problem. Maybe senior leaders need to know more. Uh, and so whenever we run programmes, what we do is we um, develop the line managers and we have senior leader sponsors in the development as well as part of it. And for me, it's, it's I think when you try and target a group of people who experience the problem and try and fix them yeah. or get them to fix the problem, I think that's too much to ask. Um, and, and I think we all need to hold up a mirror to ourselves and recognise that organisations are a system and, and everything, every action has a reaction. There are many interdependencies. And so we all need to be doing the work. Yeah, that's what Paul alluded to in his yes. speech about being truly inclusive mm. as an institution. I'm just going to take a pause from here uh, for any questions that might be coming from the floor. Yeah. I don't know what the question is, but yeah, <laughs> um, my name's Carl. Um, I run an architecture practice, National One, but we've got a big office here. Uh, we're here to sign up for the equity mentorship as well. So Brilliant. If you could tell me if I hate it, yeah. good. Secondly, we're the architects uh, for all. Um, the majority of the new work which is happening outside of the student accommodation at UE. So for those who know, that's the Glenside relocation, but also the a, Blocks A to N, which is a significant project for the university over the next 10 years to restructure, improve, and uh, provide other benefits to all their existing stocks. It's a really significant thing. We've promised to make this an exemplar project on many levels, including from an EDI point of view, and everyone's running around saying, yes, 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 okay, what do we do? What advice would you give me as an architect? Good uh, question. Starting that project uh, to set some strategies in place, some which will be within our control, some will be completely outside of our control, but maybe new to control. So what sort of ideas um, from Yui to, to accommodate that? Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Yes. So, who will be using the the building that you're describing? Uh, all of the students in you. Okay. And all of the staff in you. Fantastic. So, I, I don't know if you already have a, a diverse focus group of students and staff at UE. But getting their perspectives would be really amazing on how they plan to use it and what's important to them. Because for all of us, um, you know, if we think about religion as an aspect, some people need want to pray, uh, some people will need quiet spaces, um, some people maybe have children, um, some people are older, we know we're having an ageing population in the UK. So making sure you have a diverse group of people who are able to, to explain to you what their needs are um, is, I think, one of those things that it would be really helpful. The other is, I would look for inspiration from different places yeah um so i'm not sure where you get your inspiration for your architecture currently but quite often we're not looking outside of the uk for our inspiration um, and i think that the more we can realize that knowledge uh, inspiration ideas great work comes from other places that we might not have looked at before africa asia etc um, you might be able to bring something different, interesting, unique, and maybe a bit of home to some people. 
Um, so I, I think it's about asking people how they're going to use it and what their needs are and ask them specifically about things that perhaps you might not be thinking about from your lived experience, um, but also looking for the wisdom from outside as well. Yeah. Thank you. So we are trying to look at all of that. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and even and your and the staff as well. Just thinking yeah. about that because they can pick things up too. Your your staff. Yeah, I think it, it, you're alluding also to sort of equality impact assessing mm. everything that we do from the very beginning in mm. terms of asking different communities and because of that intersectional mm. issues as well it yeah. may work for one but actually the more we ask people and engage with them to and the more we can actually get some feedback as to what it, the buildings might look like I guess for something for, mm. for me. Thank you. Uh, another interesting question here, how do we encourage students to ask for help? Mm. Example with their studies, skills or careers if they feel like imposters, especially when the people providing that help don't look like them? It's mm. a really good question and um, this idea of asking for, I think, I think it's about finding the medium that mm. works for them. Um, and it would be, and I think it's really useful for some people, they love a chat box <laughs> or a WhatsApp message as opposed to come and make an appointment with me and sit in front of me. Um, so I, I think there can be some of that. I also think, you know, with my social enterprise, for example, it's for 13 to 14 year olds. I never, I never stand on stage and speak to them because actually they just, what's this old person know about anything to do with me? So sometimes it's about putting people, it is about putting people who look like them or similar age or similar experience in front of them so they feel that it is, you know, someone they can actually relate to. So I think asking them what they need, if they can share that, trying different things, different people who can match uh, match them or different medium as well different um, approaches. yes I, I think that's that's the, that's the best thing you can do experiment yeah yeah, yeah. Experiment. Mm. it's a good way of putting it mm. any other questions yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll come to you your person then we'll come to you afterwards I am Danny Oh, that's that's a really difficult difficult question. Um, <laughs> my work is so much about everything that's important to me. Um, whether that's having a one-to-one -one coaching session with a leader, to speaking to a group of people, to, to you know working with teenagers, to a diverse executive coach directory, I have. It's all for me advancing. Um, and hopefully, you know, my hope, advancing equity and inclusion in organisations. So I'm not sure that I have a favourite piece of work. I used to spend most of my time doing one-to-one -one coaching. And now I spend a lot of my time managing a business, actually, uh, and, and managing people who are, de are delivering our training. Um, I, I enjoy it. I, oh, I'd say the only thing I don't enjoy is liaising with my accountants and, you know, doing some uh, managing my diary. Those are things I don't necessarily enjoy because they take me away from from the work I love to do. Um, I went to Romania a couple of weekends ago and I delivered a talk there and it 
um, Romania is uh, not particularly ethnically, well, it's not ethnically diverse. I'm going to say not, um, not what I, what I saw anyway. Um, and it was an audience who were so hungry and interested in leadership and um, what, is, what it could diversity and inclusion mean for them. And th that was quite exciting to go somewhere where people just didn't, it was brand new and they were hungry and interested. So I'd say if I was thinking about one of the latest things I've done, which I've really enjoyed, that was it. But I, I would say on a daily basis, I've had a great day today. I really <laughs> have, you know, I, I, I'm really lucky to have lots of great days. Just two thoughts in terms of getting your views. The whole issue around intersectionality, around race and gender. Mm -hmm. and you've done huge amounts of work around that and just your thoughts around what it is. And the other one, Paul talked about authentic leaders, but also the issue around authenticity, but also lived experience. Mm -hmm. you, know, and you alluded to that. So mm -hmm. just your thoughts on those two sort of topics. Yes. So in terms of intersectionality, if anyone isn't familiar with the term, there's Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, a U.S. scholar, uh, coined the term. And, and what she said was, if we're not intersectional, some of us will fall through the cracks. Um, and what she meant by that is that sometimes organizations focus on gender and they do really well on gender but then we look at the women who have um, managed to work up the ranks and we might not see an intersection of race and ethnicity disability uh, sexual orientation etc so so what happens there is that you tick, tick a box saying you've done well but you actually haven't and the other thing that she talks about is the compound effect of different characteristics. So I'm a woman and I'm black. And she says that one plus one doesn't equal two in this situation. There's a real compound effect that I'll experience much more discrimination than if I had one or the other. Um, but also that sometimes people escape. So they'll say, well, I promote women just because I haven't promoted the black woman. You know, I am not sexist um, or, uh, you know, I promote black people but just because I haven't promoted the, the women black people, then I'm not racist. Um, and, and sometimes it's about that intersection um, that we, we miss and we don't realise. And um, if your organisations have data, if, if you do collect data, it's really useful to look at the intersections and realise who's, who's not doing well in your organisation and start to understand why that is. So, so this intersectional approach is really key and thank you so much for bringing it up. Um, your second point was about um, lived experience. Um, and, and I think it is really important for people to share their lived experience, but only if they want to. So what I think has happened following the tragic murder of George Floyd is that organisations have said, share your lived experience. Tell us what it means to be a black person in the UK. That's a big burden. I come to, you know, you go to work to do your job, whatever that is. You might be in marketing, you might be in sales, you might be teaching. That's what you come to work to do. You don't come to work to share all of the difficult experiences, your, your, racial, your racial trauma. Um, and, um, I, you know, if I cut my hand, for example, you would never, and it's healed up, you'd never say, please open your wound to tell me how painful that wound is. You would never do that. Um, but that's what we do sometimes when we ask them to share their lived experience over and over again. So I, I think there's um, the individual's lived experience is really important, but expecting them to share it with you 
in a context outside of which it's natural for them to share it with you is it's requiring a lot from people um, and it can feel like a burden um, and a lot of emotional labor in the workplace however one thing i would say is that i think senior leaders role modeling sharing their lived experience can be hugely powerful I've worked with people in HE, senior leaders, who will say, I've got quite a working class background, but no one here knows that. You know, my, my son is married to um, a, a woman from a, a, a racially a different background, but no one here knows that. And so I think that sometimes the diverse experience and the diversity of senior leadership teams can seem like it's not very diverse when there's quite a lot of diversity and understanding that can be brought into the conversation and that vulnerability and self-disclosure can help others in the organization feel like they belong more um, feel included and feel like they can share their story as well so i you know that the lived experience is a re really interesting piece and also that we're not no one's a monolith you know the language even when we talk about the global majority that's, you know, that's, that's a group of people who are all so individual. Um, and so it's about not making assumptions about people's experience, but really understanding what their lived experience is. Thanks, Jenny. Any other questions? Yeah. Jenny, I'm interested to go back to what you were saying about um, the box ticking and, mm. and that actually systemic change needs to see organisations really kind of... Uh, make significant commitments and to be in it for the long term. So my my own background within EDI specifically is focusing on disability and neurodiversity. And I think you touch on something around intersectionality where bringing those different strands of diversity management together in a really obvious way helps an organisation to see that it's this commonality which means that they're not spinning loads of different plates, but there's something which is anchoring a common purpose about extending culture, organisational culture. So, But I, I wonder, and I think that's valuable uh, to help get buy-in from organisations, but I wonder what your thoughts are about moving and how you move organisations beyond that kind of box ticking, we've done it, we don't need to come back to that again. What, what, how do you get that commitment? How do you drive that sustainability hmm. and challenge leaders to go on that journey? Yeah, it's, it, I think it, it is a challenge and, and um, getting people on board is, is difficult. And uh, to, most of the time when I work with organisations, already there is that commitment from the top to commit for quite a long time. I think that for me, I'm almost will I am willing to walk away from organizations that are just trying to, to, to tick a box. But what I'd say is ultimately, and I, I'm sure you know this argument if you're working in this space, um, I, I talk to the data some of the time. So about the difference that it's going to make for them. Uh, about their com competitiveness. Um, in fact, in Romania, there's a great example of an organization who's created 300, I think it's 300 jobs for people with disabilities and started to realize that 
tapping into so many people who have been unable to work for, for whatever reason for so many years. That's a whole new workforce they can tap into and use. So I think case studies help. Um, speaking to the pain of the organisation helps. Um, and then try and speak to their humanity um, and really think about, actually, if you want to do this once to tick a box, what, you know, actually, what is the real why beneath it? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's giving people the confidence to be able to go on that journey, partly because they're securing the knowledge that there's some benefit to mm -hmm. that be financial or other. Yes. But actually looking outside to see that other people have done it already and it's not quite as it doesn't need to be as anxious as perhaps some people think it, it may be. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. But there's also nudge theory as well, where they might, you might, if there are people with uh, disabilities in the organisation already, find ways for their stories to be told. Um, if they're feeling excluded, if they're feeling um, stifled in their career, if they're experiencing microaggressions, etc. And when people hear, hear those stories, often you know, that sense of, is this the kind of organisation that I want to be a part of or do I want to shape something different can be quite powerful as well. Yeah, thank you. Come back to your question here. And I'll come over there, OK. It was similar to the last question, but as someone who's more junior in their role, I've come across a few leaders who are maybe static in their thinking, and it goes back to that tick box exercise where there's literally been you know, sentences or conversations had that say, we're looking at the numbers and we're only going to do it to fulfill a tick box exercise. Mm -hmm. As a junior, what tips do you have to challenge that thinking in the moment? Yeah, I think that's a, I think it can be a real challenge because you're talking about the dynamics within uh, power dynamics, partly within a team, within a meeting, etc. And, and it might not you might not get a great response if you challenge in the moment, actually. Um, you know, I want to be realistic here <laughs> um, about what that might feel like. Someone more junior challenging me, you know, who do they think they are? You know, <laughs> all of that. My ego's bruised, etc. You know, there are sometimes different ways to go about it. And I, I think perhaps sometimes talking to someone and planting a seed of an idea outside a meeting, even if they come back and say, I've got this brilliant idea and you know it came from you, can sometimes be the better way around it. Or using tools. Um, I, I don't know particularly the instance you're talking about, but sometimes what I've done is introduced something like a privilege quiz um, and then said, oh, you know, this has been really interesting. Maybe we could do this and have a conversation about it. So you're not directly um, uh, uh, challenging someone, but you're helping to challenge their thinking as a group can be another way around it. If you have psychological safety in your in your team, in your in your situation, and you know that there are no adverse consequences for you speaking up, then I would absolutely say in the moment, have we thought about this? You know, what if this person was in the room? Is there another way we can look at this? Um, you know, you could challenge, but I, I would like you to have psychological safety to be able to do that. Thank you. We have time for one, maybe two more questions. I'll come back to you if we've got the time. Um, on the top row there. Uh, yeah, give it.
How, do, how does the university create that safe space when to have those difficult conversations yeah, that exactly. the world is having at this moment in time? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. That's a really great question. I actually um, I'm working with an organization in America um, and they said yesterday they did exactly that. They facilitated a conversation about what is happening in the world with people from both sides. Um, and it was a tough conversation, um, but they said it was just so valuable and they managed to do it in a really peaceful way. I think you need um, people with great skill with great mediation skill, with great skill at facilitating conversations, number one. But also, you need the people who want to have the conversation in the room. So we can't force those who want to be neutral to have the conversation, but sometimes those people can watch it back if people are willing for it to be heard. So um, in, in the work we do, we often call it a fishbowl. There are people talking, but, and we are observing them talking. A little bit like what we just did, we had a conversation and, and you all observed it, didn't you? Um, and, and that can be a really great way to do it. So the people who want to have a conversation are mediated, they're facilitated, there are some really clear ground rules around the conversation. And those who want to observe and learn from their neutral position can, can then observe. The other thing I'd say is, in, in companies, they have things called employee resource groups um, where people come together and feel safe to have conversations. Um, and I'm not sure what happens within the student body, but there might be small groups that you have that are safe spaces to have conversations as well. Or try to possibly create them. Uh, we've got time for one final quick question uh, before I hand back to Paul. Over here. I think there's quite a stigma um, with many communities around mental health. You know, does this even exist? Um, I watch a parody account on Instagram um, and it's a, a man who talks about Arab parents and he says, mental health, what is mental health? Get, you know, get yourself busy. You've got too much time on your hands. And, the, um, and it's, you know, they say it in a jokey way, but there is still, I think, that narrative. Um, so you know, it, it is a challenging one because um, I think as well with children, people wonder, you know, it's about building relationships because um, parents will be concerned about what you might be saying to their child because it's a confidential relationship. I think um, I, I don't know what you do to go along to community spaces 
but I think it's going along to spaces and getting people to know you and begin to trust you and sharing some of the difference you've been able to make in those in those spaces. But I think that you're you're dealing with a stigma um, that exists with so many communities that's been there for a really long time. Um, and it might be only when people are really desperate that a, a lot of people from from uh, those backgrounds are going to come to you. Um, but knowing that you're there is really important. And I don't know how you advertise yourself. And if people see you, see your actual face, because a name on a bit of paper is not going to tell us um, what we when, when we see that might connect us with you as well. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you all for all your questions and uh, apologies that we couldn't get through all of the questions on METI. But moreover, a real special thank you to Jenny Garrett OB for coming in on this rainy day to answer <laughs> some really tough questions. Thank you, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm now going to hand back to Paul Obelardi to, to close today. But just a reminder that we are having drinks uh, outside afterwards, so please come and join us. Um, Paul, over to you. I'll bring the mic over to you. First, I want to thank you all for being here tonight. I think we've had a gem in Jenny, mm -hmm. and the questions she has answered are provocations on different aspects, especially on being, to me, being curious mm -hmm. and minding the little details and connecting with the little details. But a gem statement to me tonight, which I'm taking home, I don't know whether Simon has a plan for us to drop one thing on Mentimeter, what I'm taking home. Mm. But what I'm taking home, what Paul is taking home from Jenny tonight, is you can learn from nature. And flowers don't compete. Mm. They say you still bloom. And it just talked into my mind that could this be the generation that we can all bloom together, just like flowers do. The previous generations have failed for three, four hundred years competing for space. And they've all died. Could this be the generation that will bloom together by being inclusive? And for us as a university, we are determined that you will be that blooming place. That as students come in year in, year out, 18-year-olds come in, they will come to this fertile ground where they can bloom together. That's the dream that we have, and that is why we want to be an anti-racist institution. It's been a long, it will be a long journey for us, but we will do it because you all want to do it. And I'm just challenging the generation. My generation is the generation that talks about the pain of racism. But could there be a new generation that bloomed together? So thank you very much, Jenny. We still bloom. Okay? Thank you very much for that. I'm grateful.